Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Heidi Gardner, PhD, is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School's Center on the Legal Profession, faculty chair of the school's accelerated leadership program, and co-founder of the Gardner & Company Research and Advisory Firm. She's also the author of more than 70 books, chapters, case studies, and articles, including her book, Smart Collaboration, How Professionals and Their Firms Succeed by Breaking Down Silos, which was published in 2017, and uh, Leadership for Lawyers, Essential Strategies for Law Firm Success, which was published in 2019. Previously, Dr. Gardner was a professor at Harvard Business School and has been named Thinkers 50 at the Next Generation Business Guru. And she's lived and worked on four continents, including as a Fulbright Fellow and for McKinsey & Company and Procter & Gamble. So we are so excited to have you here today, Dr. Gardner. And uh, we can't wait just to dive in and learn from you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Great. So why don't you start out by, I kind of gave a brief introduction, uh, but what an exciting life. <laughs> I, I have to say, I've been incredibly fortunate. I mean, you know, some will say luck favors the prepared, but I will be the first to admit that I have had a lot of luck along the way. I came from relatively modest origins. I grew up in Amish country in Pennsylvania, um, and uh, and from there became um, the the first woman in our extended family to certainly to graduate from an Ivy League university and go on for a couple of master's degrees and a doctorate and teaching at Harvard. And in looking back, it is clear to me that I've had a lot of incredible support along the way and um, have been privileged to work with incredible people from whom I've learned so much. I always say that when I'm in the Harvard classroom or working with clients, I always learn at least as much as my clients do. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, we, we look back and we realize how many people when when we're working so hard and we think we're doing it alone, we can always look around and know that there are other people there. But for them, we probably wouldn't be where we were. So um, but you are incredibly accomplished. And I know that also comes with a lot of hard work on your part and not just luck. So um, we thank you for being here. I, I'm really eager to sort of dive in. Um our audience is our women law firm owners. And so I really want to sort of focus on um, information that would help us to grow our firms more successfully. And so uh, the couple of the couple of books that I mentioned, and I know you've written very many uh, with books and articles and case studies. Um, but uh, in particular, I want to know, can you Smart collaboration, how professionals and their firms succeed by breaking down silos. Can you talk to us about what it means to break down silos and why that's important? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me start with this idea of smart collaboration. You know, what is it and why should we care? Well, Mm. smart collaboration, we talk about the integration of different kinds of specialized experts who come together to tackle problems, you know, in the legal firm context, tackle their client problems that are more complex than any of them could do on their own. Mm. And 
you know, this sounds like a no-brainer in some ways, and yet we see that it's really hard to accomplish in law firms, both large and small, um, as well as virtually every kind of organization on the planet. But when we're thinking about law firms, there's two trends that really drive this need for collaboration. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that most lawyers, nearly all lawyers who are at the top of their game, are more specialized than they used to be. Um, so, you know, even if you have the sole practitioner who, you know, takes care of the legal needs for the community that they live in, chances are over time they have developed some deep, deep, deep expertise in particular areas. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's where people really uh, know that reputation. They understand that this isn't just the full service law firm, but you know, people will be attracted to that lawyer from, you know, many miles away because you know, she's established her reputation as the go-to person and for this kind of law. Mm-hmm. And that specialization is really important. It's really functional and adaptive. It's how you get to be known as an expert. But at the same time, our clients' needs are getting much more complex than they used to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about what appears superficially to be a straightforward question. You know, given the COVID situation, do we have people work from home or do we have them come into the office or some other configuration? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in years past, a question about remote working may have touched on our thoughts about you know, human resources. Um, you know, what, 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 what do our pl- employees need? Um, what's going to make them most productive and so forth? But these days, of course, there's a huge number of compliance issues in there. You need to take on board the uh, the policy implications, you need healthcare expertise, you even need advice from your air conditioning or heater experts to help right. you understand air quality. I mean, tell me when in the past you had the owner of a law firm drawing on their HVAC specialist at the same time as calling their medical doctor to try to make a decision about where their people worked. I mean, wow. Right. right. So, you know, that's the example of smart collaboration in action. It's people with different kinds of expertise coming together to tackle these complex problems. And what our research shows, I mean, I've been conducting this research at Harvard University for more than a decade. We now have millions of data records that span law firms of every shape, size, specialty, you know, location that you can really consider. And by crunching the data, What we're able to demonstrate empirically, you know, this is bringing math and science to what some people consider to be a soft topic. And we're Mm -hmm. able to demonstrate with our number crunching that collaboration of the kind we just talked about leads to very tangible business outcomes, higher revenues and profits, more um, not just lucrative, but loyal customers in, in the long term, sustainable client relationships, the ability to attract and retain the best talent in the market. These are all outcomes that add up for the bottom line. And it clearly demonstrates the business and talent case for, talent case for smart collaboration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So talk to me, give, if we can sort of bring it to with women uh, own law firms, what we're seeing now a lot is we're seeing a lot of women attorneys who are starting their own firms because, um, you know, the law firm business has not always been kind to women. It's a, it's a model that doesn't work oftentimes, especially for uh, women with children. And now we're seeing a, a whole generation that's grown up with tech and they're working uh remotely. They love the remote lifestyle and they love that. And you're seeing a lot of sort of lifestyle businesses and they're hiring people, but they might be distributed workers and that kind of thing. What kinds of 
how can we use smart collaboration in those types of models? But the, the remote working, I think, is a double-edged sword for collaboration. On the one hand, it's a huge boon because it means we can tap into a labor force well beyond the boundaries of anything we would have done before. And we're mm-hmm. seeing this with law firms. You know, Small law firms now are able to bring on board, uh, whether it's paraprofessionals, paralegals, and, and so forth, technologists, other kinds of industry experts, and they're able to access them in ways that allow for seamless integration, even though they might be sitting on the opposite side of the country or the opposite side of the world. And mm-hmm. so we're seeing that openness to people working with others you know, in a distance mode that probably just wasn't, um, wasn't there before. There was no receptivity for it. We didn't maybe have the technology in place or the comfort with it and so forth. So right. that's the, the, the upside. The downside is that we need to be hyper cognizant of the need to reach out beyond our own expertise. Mm-hmm. Our research shows that, um, we, so let me take a, a quick step backwards. I mentioned all of those millions of data records that we have. Some of them are from law firms that span a whole decade. And that might be from say 2004 to 2014. So mm-hmm. right in the middle of it, we have this shock of the last financial crisis and we can examine our data records to understand how collaboration patterns changed before, during, and after the crisis, and the effects that that had on performance. So all of that to say, our data clearly shows that in times of crisis, most, like 70% of lawyers and other people, but 70% of partners in law firms will become more self-defensive and and operate uh, more in silos or more individualistically than they did pre-crisis. And you know, that sort of makes sense from a self-protection mindset. If work comes in, I'm going to feed myself first rather than right. turning to a colleague who has complementary expertise or rather than referring that to another firm that might be somewhat better situated or even, you know, rather than getting an associate involved, I'm going to do it myself. But what we show is that for the 30% of people who were highly collaborative during a financial crisis, they had far superior individual performance and collective performance. Their their revenues did not drop nearly as far during the crisis, and they recovered significantly faster than people who went into that isolation mode. That's interesting. That's so interesting. Do you, do you think, uh, you know, I, I find with uh, social media being what it is and sort of a younger generation that's sort of grown up on social media that I tend to see a lot of the younger lawyers and, and speaking with younger lawyers um, being more open to collaboration because of sort of the way that they've been brought up in that culture, as opposed to people of you know my generation who are in their you know mid fifties, where you're sort of grew up in the eighties, where it was a totally different sort of model. It's very competitive, very hungry, very that kind of thing. Are you, or do you think that that has anything to do with it, sort of the way our technology is allowing us to be more collaborative? So I would say two things. We, we see countervailing trends there. On the one hand, we do see this technological fluency allowing people to collaborate more seamlessly um, and more comfortably when they're in remote situations. And so I think mm. that has real advantages. What we've never found in our data, though, is a correlation between age and propensity to collaborate in this way that we call smart collaboration. Mm -hmm. And um, in other words, 
it, it takes some degree of maturity and confidence to be able to admit that you don't know everything and mm-hmm. to be willing to reach out and share work, share credit, get other people on board um, and, uh, and truly engage in this kind of smart collaboration. So mm-hmm. there are people who get it at an early age and they are people who have a, a tremendous growth mindset. They understand that they will take on stretch assignments, but that they're going to need um, backup to do that. They're not afraid to expose some of their perhaps you know less than stellar thinking if it will allow them to stretch their wings and um, and 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 have somebody backing them up to make sure that they don't fall. You know, some people have that. Desire to operate in that way, but it isn't necessarily a generational divide. I think we see, you know, quite a number of people um, early mid career who feel like they need to fend for themselves. They need to establish and burnish their own reputation. They need to, you know, individualistically climb to the top of the ladder. And then when they quote unquote make it, mm-hmm. then they'll team up with people. And frankly, by then, you know, they've they've surrounding themselves with the kind of people who are also anti-collaborative and they're less likely to be able to make the shift to working with others. Do you see, have you seen in your research gender differences or have you taken a look at that? Because, um, you know, women sort of have a reputation for being more collaborative and, uh, and men sort of have a reputation for being more competitive. And I know the traditional law firm model is one that is very, competitive and kind of cutthroat. So it's, it, are you, have you researched that at all? We absolutely have researched it. In our first book, Smart Collaboration, we didn't touch gender with a 10 foot pole. And <laughs> the reason, you know, the reason was twofold. Number one is that I got advice from a mentor of mine um, who I think was dead right and said, you know, the issue is so explosive that if you talk about that, you'll get pigeonholed as a gender researcher and, um, you know, and first make the case for collaboration, the business case, use the financial data and so forth before you get into the diversity and gender dynamics. But secondly, and here's the, the really tough part, is that it's hard to study diversity in law firms because they are by definition, not very diverse. And, right. and so we have gender findings and, you know, we can run statistical models with reasonable reliability looking at women. But if we try to look at any other diversity category, the models blow up because you have, you know, almost no one who's not an outlier, right? You mm-hmm. have two black partners in a law firm or something, right? So long story right. short, yes, we studied gender. We haven't written about it until now. We're just um, kicking off research for the follow-up book to Smart Collaboration, and we have two chapters devoted to, to diversity and gender specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to answer your question, you know, though, there are um, very significant and uh, reliable, as in sort of uh, um, similar from firm to firm, results that we see about collaboration and gender, but they're a whole lot more nuanced than anyone really thinks about. It's not just women are more collaborative than men, men are cutthroat. It is that women operate in ways and are given um, and take opportunities that are quite different from those that men will take. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it adds up to a pattern where, as you said, the, the traditional big law model isn't particularly conducive for women. Um, mm-hmm. so some of our data, for example, shows really clearly, uh, statistically, that of all the things that you could predict would um, 
depend, you know, for, of, of all the factors that would help somebody become the natural um, heir to a client relationship. Um, you know, you think about how much time have they worked on that client, how close are they to the current you know, lead partner, um, what's their area of practice, all of these different things um, should determine whether somebody who's an up and comer is the natural heir to take over the client relationship when the current lead partner or whatever retires or steps away or something. Mm-hmm. What we find in our data is you control for all of those other factors that should be legitimate determinants of who becomes the next client lead partner. And but as soon as you enter gender into the model, all of those evaporate. The only thing that matters is whether you're a man or a woman. Hmm. Hmm. And so, you know, we see and, you know, anecdotally, women in law firms see this happening all the time, that they get passed over for these plum assignments for these important roles for the most powerful committees and so forth. But the problem is that we don't understand the root causes of this. And through our research, we're able to track the the beginnings of this pattern of discriminatory outcomes very, very, very early on. It's a pattern of mentoring, of coaching, of sponsorship, of the kinds and extent of opportunities that women versus men get. You know, let me give you another quick um, data-based anecdote um, or data-based example. When we look at the kinds of work referrals that women partners in law firms get, we see that women are receiving many more referrals for work. In other words, they're pulled on to many more client projects by number than their male counterparts are. And this could be a signal that partners, men or women who are running client teams are trying to do the right thing and say, hey, let's make sure we have women on our team. The problem is it's all done in this completely laissez-faire way. Um, And so what happens is women are pulled onto the team, but for very small pieces of work which means that they don't get the benefit of really sinking their teeth into significant um, pieces of work. So they're, they're tapped to do the same thing again and again. They're, they're stretched across too many different clients at once with all the incumbent switching costs. They really bear a lot of the costs associated with, um, with those small bitty referrals um, mm-hmm. while, their, while their male colleagues are uh, referred, you know, big chunky pieces of work where they get to have a lot of client uh, interface and uh, and really a lot of deep learning and the results associated with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is so interesting. I, I am, I am, I hold some, uh, I pulled some women law firm owners and in on Facebook and in my groups and I'd ask them what the number one reason for them leaving, um, starting choosing to start their own practice was. And most of them are saying uh, it was for flexibility mm-hmm. and control of their schedule because they're raising families. And we've read the uh, walking out the door study by the ABA and they're talking about women uh, attorneys in their fifties who are leaving law firms at the, at the point where they really should be enjoying the fruits of their labor um, because the traditional law firm model isn't, uh, doesn't take into consideration the kind of the societal norms of women having that full-time job in the law firm and full-time job at home that men don't have. And it still exists in our society. 
And so now you're seeing a lot of kind of younger women going out and say, I'm just going to go start my firm to begin with. Um, what, you know, how much of this uh, is, is a result of, you know, women sort of saying, this is not, this doesn't work for us. Do you know what I mean? Like we can, like there's a piece of it where women aren't given opportunities in traditional law firms and not the mentorship and not the big, you know, cases and all of that. And then there's a piece of it where a lot of women don't want it. I don't know. That sounds very anti-feminist and I, I'm a feminist, so I don't mean that, but like, well, you I, know, I, I think it's not, I think it's not that women don't want those opportunities. Um, I think women are just as hungry as men are to get um, challenging assignments, you know, to, to stay at the top of their intellectual game, to engage with clients who really depend on them for not just specialist legal advice, but to become the trusted advisor. Um, I, you know, I think women actually do want that, but they want that and they're not willing to settle for that at the cost of human relationships, a personal life, their well-being, yeah, I mean, and and, right. and rightly so. So, you know, I think rather than framing it as do women want these big opportunities or not, it's do women want to pay a traditional cost for those kinds of opportunities? And mm -hmm. no, and frankly, men don't either. But um, for a lot of them, the societal pressures cut the other way. They're, right. you know, they're expected to be, whether it's breadwinners or you name it, right? And so I think that, um, women could truly step into leadership here by innovating and demonstrating how different kinds of models can work really well. And some of that might mean going out on their own, like your, your, your listeners did. And I admire that a lot. Um, but, you know, frankly, I'll, I'll be clear, I'm really biased um, because I stepped off the tenure track at Harvard Business School in order to go do my own thing. Right. Now, I'm still at Harvard Law School, but I crafted my own job there. I actually have, you know, different titles at Harvard Law School. I have a distinguished fellow title, which is my research title. I'm the mm -hmm. faculty chair of programs. So I run our executive education programs on some of the courses. But that required me to do what your listeners did, which is basically buck the system, say, mm -hmm. you know, the system, that tenure track system wasn't working for me. I'm going to go do my own thing, chart my own course. And I can tell you, I am happier now. I'm far better off financially and I've right. got enormous amount of autonomy and I haven't lost anything because I still get to do the research I want to do and serve the clients I wanted to teach incredibly smart people coming through the Harvard system. So, you know, that's, you know, I, I think I'm doing the same thing in academia that your listeners are doing in law. And the question is, can we then go back and do we have an appetite for it? Is there scope to do this? You know, does anyone listen if we go back to the traditional system and say, hey, it doesn't have to be like that? Right, right. Well, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of women law firm owners, a lot of women lawyers becoming women law firm owners, and they are working to grow law firm businesses and really are faced with these questions of, do I do, I do a traditional model? only now I'm head cheese, you know, so how is this going to impact or do I start bringing in some other, uh, other ways to work, you know, some flexibility and, and that kind of thing. Like, so it's, uh, I, I know that I've been, you know, I've talked, I've spoken with many over the last seven years who 
struggle with this, you know, sort of um, idea of we know it works to build so many hours and, you know, work our associates to, you know, 2000 hours a, a, a month or whatever. And then, I mean, a year, or do we do something that's less intense and maybe we don't make as much money or is there another model that can? So I think it'll be very interesting to see in the next decade, how that, if that begins to shift and how, it, what it looks like, you know? Absolutely. You know, my, I don't have a crystal ball, but my, you know, anticipation, if not prediction is that we're going to see a flowering of many different kinds of models in the legal ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And if I take a look, you know, gosh, 12 years ago or, or more, perhaps I wrote a case study of a small consultancy in based in London, founded by two of my former McKinsey partners, and they have a network based consulting model. They they employ directly very few people, but they take on extremely large engagements for clients and they're up against, you know, competing for those assignments with the very big traditional consulting firms. And um, the people who are working with them in this network model have all kinds of flexibility, um, and they're doing it for a huge range of of reasons. Um, You know, some of them had, you know, spent half a year working as a consultant in the UK and half a year living in Japan for whatever reason, or they were starting a different business and only wanted to work, you know, every other week or, you know, but, you know, more than a decade ago, we saw a lot of those kinds of innovations in terms of models of working models of the firm um, flowering in flourishing in, um, in the consulting arena, for example, I'm surprised we haven't seen that happen yet um, to such an extent in the legal arena. But I absolutely think that there's um, there's scope for that. And I think to your earlier point, um, technology is allowing us to really question some of the assumptions about how lawyers need to work. Um, mm-hmm from where, with whom, um, how long, and, uh, and and what does it really mean to put in an hour's work? I, I think that's a big one up for grabs. Right, right. Absolutely. And, you know, what you described is is a, a collaboration model that, you know, I, I, I interviewed someone um, recently who is an attorney who was on a high-profile case, and uh, she did it she was part of a collaborative team. So there were lawyers brought in from different disciplines who participated together, even though they were not in the same firm um, on this high profile case. So that, you know, we may start seeing more of that kind of thing, particularly since people are becoming a little more autonomous and we're kind of, you know, not seeing some of the behemoth law firms anymore, you know? I, I think, I think we will see a lot more of that, you know, and it's funny because, Legal practitioners are used to doing that with other domains. You know, they'll bring in the economist for, you know, as an expert witness or the medical doctor or so. Mm -hmm. And so they realize that they need to collaborate with these other disciplines outside of their law firm when the expertise is needed. It's Mm -hmm. not a huge leap of imagination to say, well, if we don't have that expertise, you know, inside our law firm, it doesn't, it's not even somebody in a law firm per se. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is it that we wouldn't collaborate with them in order to solve these more complex problems? And I think that the definition of what constitutes a firm even can, um, can, can flex and innovate in ways that we just haven't experimented with as much in the, the legal community as is necessary. So what would be a good way for us to start thinking about 
how we can collaborate in, you know, in a, uh, with a small law firm. It really starts with understanding the, from the client centric perspective, what are the problems that warrant this kind of collaboration? You know, clearly you're not just trying to over lawyer the client. If you can get on with it yourself and you're the expert, do it. But really stepping back and saying, is that what's really going to benefit the client the most? Is there somebody else who has whether it's tech expertise or estate planning expertise or antitrust expertise or whatever, you know, what is it that the client's not asking right now that they should be? Um, and, and how do we bring a more holistic solution oriented answer to a question than simply responding to a specific question that we've been asked? And when lawyers can step up and serve their clients in this ways by anticipating their needs and helping them, you know, proactively figure out where the business is headed or where the issue is going, that's going to make a huge difference. Um, And so I'd say, you know, the starting point is really with the client problem. How do you contextualize your legal expertise so that you're helping them solve not just the legal angle, but the business problem that they're up against? Right, right. Uh, Just terrific advice. And um, I want to get into, while we have a little bit of time left, I want to get into uh, your, the the book you wrote, Leadership for Lawyers, Essential Strategies for Law Firm Success. And we want to know, of course, what some of the essential strategies are. Can you talk about those? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so that book um, is uh, an edited volume, uh, meaning that different experts um, wrote uh, chapters specifically based on their own expertise. So, you know, we have chapters in there from people who are real leaders in the field looking at what you have to do before and after a merger in order to make that merger work, for example. Um, and we have people looking at it from the perspective of, you know, perhaps more relevant to to your listeners who are running their own firms. How do you think about uh, parsing your time between law, leadership, and management? And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, somebody who is running their own law firm probably doesn't stop to think, which of those hats am I wearing right now? But it can be very effective to do that and actually to segment your time to the extent that you can. So, you know, leadership and management tend to get bundled together under the same hat of, you know, I'm running this place. What do I need to do? But if you can think really tactically about leadership is really about shaping the future. It's about the strategic longer term issues that you need to do. Have you carved out the time that you need for true leadership? Have you thought about your strategy, your competitive positioning? Have you thought about your alliances and networks and human capital? You know, whom do you have that you can rely on for these kinds of collaborative opportunities, which are much higher value than things that come to you alone? That's leadership. Thinking about, you know, and you don't even have to have employees to be a leader, right? You know, it's a thought leader. It is a, a leader in your field. The, the management side is the, the day-to-day, you know, how do you keep the trains on the track and make sure that, um, you know, the bills get out and the people get paid and, and so forth. And I would strongly, strongly encourage people to think about leadership as something that they need to spend more time on and management as something that to the extent possible, they outsource as much as they can. Um, Mm -hmm. Get somebody in there, even even somebody who's a part time office manager or whatever to handle the the management tasks that really don't require a a business owner, a law firm owner to engage in them. And I think a lot of people maybe and especially 
especially in today's really tight economic times with the uncertainty, it's hard to invest in, in, in people, but um, there are you know, real returns on investment that can be made from those kinds of, um, of, of human assets that allow us to focus our time on our best and highest purposes. And so, you know, we spend some time in the first chapter of that Leadership for Lawyers book, encouraging people to think uh, carefully of the difference between strategy and tactics mm-hmm. and where, where is their time and energy best placed. And as I said, you know, something as small as figuring out you know, have you blocked enough time to do the deep work and the, and the real strategic thinking? Have you um, segmented your day so you're not pulled into managerial stuff just at the time when you're hitting your peak of being able to think creatively and, uh, and deeply? And, um, and asking people to really be much more intentional about how they spend their most precious resource, which is their time, is mm-hmm. critical. Yeah, I, you, that you bring up an absolutely great point. Um, and it's one of the things... Um, in working with women law firm owners that uh, has is a struggle through the growth process because uh, initially it may be you and maybe a staffer or a couple of staffers and you are doing it all. And then as you grow, you still may be playing manager roles and leadership roles and they're very different. And uh, one of the things that I often recommend is really uh, taking personality assessments and really understanding what your strengths are because some people may be great visionaries and great leaders and inspirational leaders, and they just stink at the management part because they're, because they're just not, they don't think that way. You know, it's a very different hat. To yeah. Wear. And- I, don't, I don't know if you know, but we launched the Smart Collaboration Accelerator, which is a psychometric test that does exactly what you were just talking about. Love it. Yeah, um, I love it. Tell me about it. So we, based on, you know, a decade plus of research, we were able to bottom out seven behavioral dimensions that relate to smart collaboration, you know, the kind of collaboration that truly results in commercial successes. And by teaming up with a psychologist, we could um, pinpoint behavioral um, characteristics and personality traits associated with the likelihood of engaging in those behaviors. So we have this tool, the Smart Collaboration Accelerator, and people take a 10-minute online assessment and they get immediate access to their online report, which helps them understand their profile on these dimensions. Um, and so one of them, for example, is their risk propensity. Um, are they a risk spotter? Do they see a new situation as an opportunity and they want to go capture that upside that what's really drives them? Or do they see the same situation and they immediately spring their mind to, here's the downside, here's what could go wrong, how do we mitigate the risks? Now, you know, we help people understand their natural propensity to do that. You know, some other dimensions, you know, around which kinds of problems are they drawn to? How do they interact with other people? What's their um, trust threshold, et cetera? Those are all really strong predictors of whether somebody engages in truly collaborative behaviors that lead to good outcomes. And what the um, what the test shows is not only where somebody falls out on those dimensions, but the report then gets into very practical suggestions for how to use their natural tendencies as strengths. And so, you know, how do they, um, how do they show up at work? How are other people likely to perceive them? And for any of those dimensions, um, you know, maybe the, one of the dimensions is uh, complex thinking versus concrete thinking. 
you know, the complex thinkers love the abstraction and the, um, the big, you know, high level problems. And that can be a huge strength when it comes to collaboration because they do lean into the uncertain, ambiguous problems where collaboration is really valuable. Mm-hmm. But we also provide watchouts. If they, if they stop there at the, the, the level where they're most inclined to engage, which is the complex problems, they might not be good at what tends to be the more managerial side of things, you know, m- turning it into action plans and seeing them through to completion and tracking it and so forth. And so our advice to people would either be, you know, team up with somebody who has a different profile than you so that you can each leverage your strengths. That's how you're really going to thrive at work. Or if you don't have somebody that you can turn to to do that, make sure you're very intentional about bringing in the dimensions that don't come as naturally to you. You know, how do you shore up those areas? And, um, and you know, literally in, you know, a, a one hour or so investment, people take a 10 minute online report and spend some time thinking and, and, um, and understanding this afterward. Ideally, they have, you know, a coach that they work with who can help them think it through. But even on their own, they can do this and really get a lot of those insights about their own strengths. Great, great. So you will provide us a, a link to that so we can include it in the show, show notes, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm very excited about that. I'm, I can't wait to take it myself. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I'd love to I have taken it. just about every sort of personality test out there, but uh, this really sounds, uh, it sounds like it gives you the kind of information that's critical to leader, you know, to leadership and running a firm. And uh, I do think that, you know, one of the challenges of so many um, attorneys is, you know, we graduate from law school and we decide we're going to start our own firm. Maybe, right when we graduated, maybe after working someplace for a while. And law school and being an attorney, you you learn a very specific sort of skill set and way of thinking. I mean, we're taught, we're going to teach you how to think like a lawyer, right? And then when we start trying to shift and open a business and run a business, you know, we're confronted with this idea that this thinking like a lawyer doesn't necessarily work in thinking like a CEO or thinking like a business owner and operator, you know, we have to learn new skills and have different skills. And, uh, and I love anything that can help us determine what our natural strengths are um, and and give advice on how to use those, you know, a hundred percent. And one thing I think we should really acknowledge is that in times of stress and let's face it, Everyone's stressed right now, but business owners are particularly stressed right now, I think it's fair to say. And um, when we are stressed, we do what psychologists call reverting to our natural tendencies or our central Mm -hmm. tendencies. Mm -hmm. And so being self-aware, what what do we do when we're not thinking um, about how we're behaving? That's how we are going to act when we're under stress. And so the insights into those natural tendencies is more important than ever because it's how we will show up at work. It's how we'll show up to our clients or our colleagues and frankly, how we show up, you know, in our personal and home life as well. And, and being intentional about that. And even if these are ideas that you kind of have, you know, flowing around in your mind somewhere, crystallizing it and getting very concrete action points for how to be stronger um, is, is, is really important right now. And we've been working with a number of organizations since the product launched in 
uh, in the summer, we've trained up about 70 professional coaches and consultants who are now licensed to use the Smart Collaboration Accelerator with clients. And we're seeing huge receptivity in the legal world because to your earlier point, it's so true that these are not skills that are taught or reinforced through a lawyer's journey, starting from, you know, one L on up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so before we wrap up here, can you give us kind of like, uh, leave us with a gold nugget, something that we really um, can use and begin maybe implementing in our practices uh, to, to be more collaborative and be more successful in that way? Absolutely. So I'm not sure if... Um Everyone is familiar with the term psychological safety. It was uh, a term popularized by one of my colleagues, Amy Edmondson, at Harvard Business School. She was actually studying life and death situations, literally. Um, mm-hmm. she, was, she was studying surgical teams in hospitals. Um, and what she was um, exploring is the paradox of why teams that had more mistakes actually ended up with much better patient outcomes. You know, patients lived longer and got fewer infections and all sorts of things. It was a crazy result. How could the error-prone teams be so successful? But it turns out they were not making more mistakes. They were admitting mistakes. And so teams that admitted their mistakes and discussed them openly so that they could learn from them and they created an environment where people could ask for help and challenge each other and make sure they pointed out problems before they blew up into huge issues. Those were the ones where they learned, they grew, they improved, and they had superior outcomes, measurably, demonstrably important superior outcomes like patients living. Um, And the teams that had the opposite, um, where people were hierarchical, they were scared to speak their mind, they couldn't admit a mistake if they did make it because they were afraid of getting fired. That kind of fear and top-down autocratic leadership, if you can even call it leadership, um, created an environment where nobody thrived, everyone was stressed, and people died. And psychological safety, right? Um, So psychological safety, you know, creating an environment that allows people to show up authentically, to ask questions, to admit mistakes, to ask for help before they admit mistakes, that is so crucial. And that's what collaboration entails. It's admitting that you don't know everything and that you are willing to take a small risk and join forces with somebody because they are more knowledgeable than you or perhaps better than you in a certain area. And the first step of admitting your limitations is crucial to the journey of collaboration and creating an environment of psychological safety and honestly putting yourself in situations where you feel psychologically safe is the absolute first necessary step on this journey. Wow. Wow. I so I could ask you so many more questions. I, I could talk with you for another hour with questions, <laughs> but we probably need to end. So could you tell us if we want to find out more about you and connect with you and find out about uh, Gardner and Company Research, uh, where can we do that? Absolutely. So our website for the company is gardnerandco.co. Um, and that has an archive of all of our publications, at least the ones we're allowed to, to release publicly um, and uh, under the research section. And, and by the way, the co in Gardner and Co stands for Gardner and Collaborators because we you know, try to, to live what we what we research and preach. Um, we also have the www.smartcollaborationaccelerator.com. And that's where you can find out about the psychometric tool and, and contact us if you're 
interested in taking that or using it in your organization. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn and always happy to, to connect with people that way as well. Great, great. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being here and, and sharing with us today. I know you. we learned a lot. I know I learned a lot. And I'm sure that the other uh, listeners will will learn a lot as well. And, um, you know, maybe we can have you back in, uh, another time and ask even more questions. I'd be delighted. As You know, this is a passion of mine. It's not just my work. It's it, it's absolutely a passion of mine. And I, I take these ideas inside and outside of law firms and into the, you know, the public sector. I work with government um, agencies. I'm working on some cybersecurity issues, which are pretty hot right now. So um, anything that I can do to help embed these, I really strongly believe that it makes us a better, better, stronger, more just place to live. Terrific. Terrific. Um, uh, where, let me just ask you this. Where, where can we get your books if we want them? Are they on the uh, website? They, they are. So links to them are on the website. Um, there's that, you know, gigantic uh, online bookseller that everyone goes to first. I'd encourage people yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to go to your independent bookstore and ask them to order a copy of Smart Collaboration. Um, support your indies and, uh, and they will order it for you because it's, uh, it's in stock and it's in, in print and they can get it for you pretty quickly. So, um, so go there or, or, or go online and get it there either way. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate that. That and I, and I, I'm in agreement with you there. So thank you so much. Thanks My for being pleasure, here, Dr. 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 We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the league in the coming year, including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. League is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.